Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode, Jack and I sit down with Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, well-known author and host of the highly rated podcast, Standard Deviations. We wanted to ask Daniel about his personal investment strategy and the role that behavior plays in investors' returns over time. Daniel shares with us his long-term investment goals, how he keeps his emotions in check, and how he invests and manages risk in his own portfolio. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Daniel Crosby. Hi, Daniel. Good to see you again, and thank you for joining us. Justin, Jack, good to be with you. Congratulations on all the success and developments you're having on your podcast, Standard Deviations. Um, We highly encourage anyone that's listening to this uh, to check that out, because that is a top. It's not only an investing podcast, but you're kind of branching out and talking about a wide range of behavioral things and just other important things that I think a lot of investors can learn from. So you're doing a great job there. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the shout out. I've tried to make it sort of money, mind and meaning, right? I mean, there's certainly some good investment content, but you know, try and try and put some life stuff in there too to keep it interesting. Yeah, and I think this conversation will we'll get into that because we wanted to have you on to talk about sort of your portfolio and your personal investment strategy. Um, we've had a number of guests on where we've talked about sort of the show us your portfolio concept, but we haven't had anyone on that is what I, who I would consider an expert in behavioral finance and investor psychology. So I think today's conversation will be a lot about your portfolio, but probably a lot about how you think about your portfolio. And I think it's a important time to be talking to someone like you, just because I think given where the markets are, I think people's emotions and fears are high. And understanding the biases and emotions that we all have can help us, you know, make it through to the other side of things. So I think this is going to be a really good conversation with you today. We're going to do our best to make it so. Um, Where we like to start these discussions is just around how you think about sort of, I guess, your biggest goals when you think about um, investing in your portfolio. So what are you, you know, when you think about your investments, what are you really trying to achieve with your um, investments? Yeah, this is uh, this is super easy. Freedom. I mean, that's like full full stop. Uh, I don't have fancy tastes. I am a simple man from Alabama. Uh, I don't need expensive things, but I do need to be left alone. So uh, freedom is really always my ultimate goal when investing. Uh, the number one thing that you know my wife and I are setting aside for is to just be able to live life on our own terms to say yes to the things that are valuable to us, to say no to the things that we don't value, and to sort of maximize quality time with family. So uh, that that freedom to me is everything. And it's one of the things that makes me able to do some of the hard work of, of you know, saving, uh, setting aside money, taking risk, uh, because I see this all in service of my freedom. And that to me is so much more powerful than, you know, a bigger house or a new car or something. Yeah, that's great. I think like people like you and like us to some extent, you know, where you have kind of come up 
in sort of a smaller company, you're not necessarily part of a smaller company now, but you've had freedom in your career and in your life. And so I think, you know, when you have that, you value that tremendously. And, and obviously that's coming through and how you kind of view your, what you hope your investments can do for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm an accidental finance guy. Like, I mean, I never, I never thought I would, would end up where I am today. I mean, I'm very much the the way that I envisioned my career would I would be in my home office with a beautiful leather chaise lounge talking to people about their feelings all day and sort of setting my own schedule and so you know the realities of a of a busy corporate career the realities of frequent travel and things like this it's it's nothing I necessarily planned for and so I really really prize my freedom uh, a great deal and see that as the number one thing that money can buy. I'm curious, do you and your wife sort of talk about retirement? I mean, do you guys, when you look at your investments, are you looking at like, okay, if my portfolio gets this and I can have a 4% withdrawal rate, we can make this. I mean, how do you sort of like approach that? Uh, maybe you don't talk about it with her. I don't, I don't talk about retirement that much with my wife. I kind of manage the investments, but I kind of just hope we're on course for that. You know, how do you sort of view that? And then as a follow-up, what do you th do you think about your retirement where you want to live what you want to do or is that too far off in the future that you're not even really yeah i i think about i think about making work optional a lot and you know and, and we talk about that a lot and all the things that i enjoy doing the most pay very poorly like you know things like i would i would love to like uh, i would love to teach college one day right like teaching's not a famously high paying gig um i would love to write books you know i i'd love to get to the point where i would just write a book a year on some different topic of my interest i'd love to play music like none of these things pay very well so in terms of like uh exiting the workforce it's nothing i really think about very much and i i don't uh, i'm not very excited to do that but being able to work on things that uh, are valuable to me independent of how much they pay that's very uh that's very appealing to me and it, it's something that we talk about a lot um we we have a kid in kindergarten so i mean the the idea of like kind of riding off into the sunset seems seems very remote uh at this point you know we we love where we live here in in Georgia we live north of Atlanta it's gorgeous we are renovating our house as we speak which is why I'm speaking to you from my bedroom but you know uh we love where we live we we love the people we live near and our community and uh you know I I think we're going to be here for a very long time. So we don't talk about that a great deal, but I do talk about, you know, I do talk about wearing tweed jackets and teaching two courses and being an associate professor and just going on long walks every day like that. That's very appealing to me. We, we tend to, uh, as you know, Justin and I are factor nerds here. So we, we tend to get wrapped up in like, you know, using the value factor or using the quality factor in the podcast. But, you know, taking a step back, like the biggest thing investors probably do to hurt themselves is, you know, or, or the biggest thing that determines their returns is not necessarily which factor we're using. It's, it's our behavior. And so we're going to talk about that a lot with you today. But before we do that, I want to just ask you, how do, much of an impact do you think that has on people's long-term returns? I mean, how much is controlling your behavior? How important is that in terms of people managing their personal portfolio and producing the best long-term returns they can? 
Well, I I ran some numbers on it. Uh, I ran some numbers on it recently, which will which will be instructive, and and it's even got a little factor research in it. So I compared over the last fifty years, right? Um, if you had invested in a value factor portfolio over the last fifty years, uh, ten thousand dollars would have become two point one million dollars, right? So fifty years ago, you would put ten thousand in and just let it ride. Okay, so ten thousand becomes two point one. In the value factor, uh, in the growth factor, ten thousand becomes one point seven, right? So whatever, like both are lovely outcomes. You know, one's better than the other, but you know, depending on your time frame and all that, but they're both great outcomes. If you look at the different measures of the behavior gap, right? So the the delta between what people um, could get from from the market and and what they actually get. There's about seven or eight different studies that look at this. Some are more conservative than others. Some, like the one that's most commonly cited, has a lot of methodological issues. But if you look at sort of the most reputable estimates of the behavior gap and you just average them and look at that that sort of missed opportunity, the average investor didn't turn ten thousand into two point one or one point seven million dollars. They turned ten thousand into four hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. And so I know that I, you know, I know that I have a hammer, so I see nails everywhere, but you just cannot overstate how important this is. And like all the stuff that, you know, nerds like us argue about, you know, value versus growth, uh, active versus passive, you know, over this time, over the same 50 years, passive did the best, right? No surprise, passive did the best. Uh, but active did very well too, and active did twice as well as the average investor. So all the stuff we argue about, which is interesting and, and, and intellectually stimulating, um, none of it matters as much as just patience, long-termism, and good behavior. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because like, people talk all the time about this active-passive thing. And like you're saying, you know, it's, you know, if you look at it in the context of behavior, now, now clearly as, as a whole, active managers do underperform. I mean, the data is pretty sound on that, but that gap is so much less than people are hurting themselves with their own behavior. Um, I want to ask you, you know, I want to see if you can maybe give us all some hope because uh, you've got a PhD, you've written three books on this, and I'm hoping you can tell me that maybe in your own portfolio, you've eliminated behavioral mistakes. But I'm wondering, do you, do you think it's possible and have you done that in your own portfolio? Um, no, I've not, I've not done it in my own portfolio, but I've, I've certainly taken steps. And so one of the biggest steps that I've taken is just having it all administered by someone else. Um, and what's, I think what will be surprising to some people, because people who've read my books know that I have ideas about how behavior can not only inform, you know, good, good financial planning and, and good sort of patient long-term buy and hold investing, but I also feel like it can positively impact the way that we select securities. And that's, I think, perhaps where I depart from from some other behavioral finance folks who just aren't as interested in that. Um, but I have someone else manage my money because if, if you look at, uh, they're doing it in a way that's consistent with my own thinking and my own writing, but they're ultimately pulling the trigger. Because if you look at, at, at some of the like, pillars of what determines how someone acts. If you want more of a behavior, you make it easier. If you want less of a behavior, you make it harder. I mean, there's like all this research on how, you know, if you're trying to get in a fitness reg uh, regimen, little stuff like, you know, putting your 
putting your gym clothes and your your tennis shoes, you know, by the door or whatever, but you know, by the door of your room dramatically impacts your your likelihood of going to the gym the next day. It's just like it's the dumbest thing cuz like how hard is it to like pull a t-shirt out of your dresser and yet it matters a lot. And on the flip side, if you're trying to get less of a behavior, you just want to make it incrementally harder. So the reason I have someone else, a financial advisor, manage my money is because I know I would blow myself up if I did it myself. Like if I I just care too much. And we see this in the research on, on advisors and their own clients too. When you look at how uh, people who work with financial advisors do way better than those who don't. That's across, there's a whole body of research on this. They, they're happier, they have better marriages, they have better marital communications, they're more prepared for an emergency, and they make a lot more money. And it's not because the advisors are, are like great stock pickers, it's because they keep them from tripping over their own feet a couple of times uh, at really opportune moments. And that's what I want from my advisor, right? Is keep me out of my way, don't let me sell in March of 2020, like I wanted to, right? Like, don't don't let me fall prey to all these behavioral mistakes that I write about, because there's a massive, massive difference between knowing what to do and doing the right thing. And so I have not even begun to root out behavioral bias in my own life, but I have put some environmental things in place that make it harder for me to blow myself up. Do you have a portion of your money you sort of manage yourself or do you do you off, uh, send all of it to a financial advisor? All of it to an advisor. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I could probably, you know, as much as getting over my own ego and doing it is, is very difficult, I should probably do the same thing because, you know, I've, just like you, I mean, I've, I've, I have difficulty making the right decision at the right time. You know, there's just so much, you know, going through a bear market right now, you know, there, there's so many things you can do wrong during a period like that. You know, it's, it's very hard, even if you've studied this stuff to do the right things. No, it's it's so hard and I'm lucky because my advisor is my dad, right? And so my 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 advisor is my advisor is my dad. So obviously there's there's good rapport there. And my dad is about um my dad is unlike me, one of the like most dispassionate, like even-keeled people you'd ever meet in your whole life. And so he just has sort of this uh, temperament for it and is good at kind of keeping my head screwed on straight. But he's also a believer in sort of how I think about the investing world. And so I've sort of, you know, look, I, I've sort of given him the playbook, you know, which is the things I've written about in my books and say, hey, the, here's the playbook, run it and keep me from from getting in my own way. Yeah, that's actually, I think using your dad is pretty cool too, because like I would, you know, if, if I'm panicking in March, 2020, and I want to call my advisor and say, sell everything, I'd probably be less likely to call my dad because I'd feel, I'd feel like I'm looking like an idiot calling my dad being like, sell everything, you know, in the middle of the bear market. Well, especially when you're Daniel Crosby behavioral finance that's guy right. and you call your dad and you're like, hey, I'm freaking out here. He's like, really, bro? Are you going to like, are you going to give five webinars today telling other people not to freak out? <laughs> I want to ask you, before we talk about your actual portfolio, I want to ask you about a few things people can use to maybe help manage their own behavior. Just, just some things I've kind of put on my list over time of things that might work. And I want to get your, your take on each one and if you think they do work. Um, and the first one is automation. How, how do you feel about automation and people automating things in their portfolio? Uh, so, I mean, I'll sort of spoil 
spoil the whole thing here. I think the two best things you can do is, is automate and work with somebody. So I, you know, if you look at, if you look at automation, um, if you look at the most powerful behavioral intervention of all time, uh, from a financial sense, it's probably Richard Thaler, uh, and, and his save more tomorrow program, which just took retirement savings and made the default to auto escalate, right? To excuse me, to auto withdraw and auto escalate your retirement savings. Like just those two things. The automation of those two things has led to hundreds of billions of dollars in in savings that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And the thing that's so brilliant about it is when we think about behavioral finance, far too often the way we think about it is people are stupid, fallen, irrational, whatever. And our job is to just kind of white knuckle it past all of this human frailty. And what Thaler did that was so brilliant was he said, no, I'm going to meet you where you're at. You're, you, you know, Joe Q human, you're, you're lazy, you're status quo prone, and you're forgetful, which can mean that you will never save for retirement. But if we can auto, uh, auto withdraw and auto escalate your retirement, we can use that laziness, that status quo proneness and that forgetfulness and make it work for you. So anytime you can take a human tendency and, and make it work for an investor and not against them, you're really onto something powerful. So I'm not sure there's much better than automation when it comes to these things. How about this idea? This is something I've kind of done for myself is like, and I think some advisors do for their clients. If you do have somebody who wants to feel like they're involved in the market and they're active, like you take a really small amount of money, you make it like your play account, you do whatever it is you're doing and you kind of just keep it isolated from everything else, like to get that out of your system. I mean, do you think that's valuable? Yeah, I do think it's valuable. Like this whole idea, I mean, it's effectively like a cheat day, right? It's just sort of like building in a little bit of a, of a cheat day. Uh, I did this for a very long time. You know, I did this for a very long time until compliance came and rained on my parade. But, you know, the uh, um, <laughs> sorry if you're listening, uh, this, you know, this is this is something I think that's that's a wonderful idea. Take whatever three, three to five percent of your wealth. If you like following markets, if you like actively investing and trading, go nuts with with three percent of your money and and sort of scratch that itch in a way that's not going to, you know, really negatively impact you long term. And honestly, it's probably going to teach you some lessons too about just how hard this is. You know, I think if you're honest with yourself and you're doing that for very long, you're like, ah, this is this is tough. Um, and I, I also think there can be uh, little things outside, call them alternative asset classes. And we'll, we're going to give you a, a, a sneak peek into my portfolio. But one of the things that I do is I collect baseball cards and I treat, I treat them. You're going to laugh. My wife laughs. I treat them like an alternative asset class. But I mean, I have, I have a whole punch list of sort of what a diversified collection looks like. And I, I set aside, you know, a small percentage of my check every couple of weeks and I get baseball cards that I think will appreciate in value. And so that, that again, kind of scratches that same itch for me. It's like, I want to be, you know, I want to be accruing, I want to be collecting, I want to have this sort of diversified portfolio. 
uh, but I don't want to do silly things. And so I, I, I buy baseball cards. Yeah, well, it's funny. You may, you may look back 20 years from now and say the baseball cards are the best investment of everything of everything you own. Yeah, if you look at stuff like, you know, there's all these things like Legos, Legos and wine and baseball cards and all these things have done well. I don't know if they'll do well in the future, but it's it's fun at least. This last, the last one I want to ask you about before we talk about your portfolio is this idea of how often you check it. So, you know, one of the things people might suggest is like the less you check your portfolio, the less behavioral mistakes you're going to make. Um, do you think there's any validity to that? Uh, there's there's a ton of validity to it, and I, there's there's a couple of reasons why, um, you know, on on any given day, the market's up about fifty five percent of the time and and down about forty five percent of the time, right? But the longer you go out, the you know the better those numbers look, and you get more up days and 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 fewer down days the longer you stretch out that time horizon. So fifty five to forty five, like that's about an even split. But it isn't an even perceptual split because we know from the research that, you know, we uh, we hate a loss about two and a half times as we like a gain. So if the market's down, if you're checking the market every day and the market's down 45 percent of the time, it feels like it's down. You know, what's 45 times two and a half? It feels like it's down all the time, like all the time. Right. And so the less you can check, first of all, just from a perceptual perspective, the, the better it's going to feel and, and the better you, the outlook's going to get. And the second thing we want to do is we want to reduce decision points. You know, one of the reasons that automation is so powerful is it's like one good decision one time. You know, you lock in a decision one time. Like imagine if there was a box you could check that just said for the rest of my life, I'm going to eat, you know, the appropriate amount of protein and, and, and fruits and vegetables every day. Like I'd like to check that box, right? And then just let it ride. Like we'd all be in great shape, right? And so, but, but that's not the way that, that food decisions make, you know, three times a day, we have to make the decision. Do I eat the donut or do I, you know, do I eat the, the hard boiled egg? And so because we have so many decision points, there's so many ways to get it wrong. And the same is true of investing. You know, every time you're checking that account, you're sort of artificially bringing yourself to the point of a decision when you probably don't need to. So the, the fewer times you can bring yourself to that nexus, I think the better off you'll be. It's funny, you know, I totally agree with this, but it was, uh, you know, we had Rick Ferry on the podcast. We did the same show as your portfolio thing with him. And we asked him the question, like, how often do you check your portfolio? Thinking like he's going to say, you know, whatever, once every quarter, I don't really care. You know, he's doing a long-term passive thing. He's like, no, I check it like 20 times a day. He's like, I just don't do anything. Um, but I, I think he's kind of the, you know, he is definitely the outlier. I mean, I couldn't check my portfolio 20 times a day and not do anything, but it was just, it, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's tougher than me. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So yeah, getting into your portfolio, can you just talk about maybe at a high level, like sort of what asset, if we were to do like a pie chart of like the asset classes you invest in, like what, what are the major asset classes you're invested in? Okay. So it's going to be very, it's going to be very boring right now. It's going to be stocks and cash. Um, that's it. So stocks and cash. I mean, I had uh, fixed income for a very long time, but haven't for the past couple of years, just because I felt like the uh, return profile for bonds wasn't good. And that was correct. So um, it's really just stocks and cash. And then of course, um, personal, personal real estate, right? So let me kind of walk you through that, right? So I have written uh, a book about and have developed some some tech systems for Orion 
around bucketing. And so one of the things that I think is important to, to understand from a psychological perspective is the difference between something that's spreadsheet optimal and something that is uh, behaviorally optimal. So a lot of the things that I do are not spreadsheet optimal, right? I paid my house off a couple of three years ago when rates were, I don't know, 2% two, 2 or something, right? When it, on paper, it would not have made sense for, for me to have paid off my house. And yet I knew that I needed to pay off my house in order to have sort of the, the, the bravery or the risk tolerance to kind of go out on the risk spectrum with some of my other assets. The same is true of me in cash. I have more cash than I think the average spreadsheet would tell you that I should have, but I like the optionality of cash right now as we kind of sit through a bear market. I, I sleep better at night because of that. Um, and it just helps me feel good, right? <laughs> so the, there's like one thing that I think is is different about my portfolio is I think of the average you know, if the average uh, sort of mathematically minded advisor looked at my um, portfolio, they would go, what, you know, why in the world did this guy pay off his house that he had a 2% mortgage on? You know, why does he have this much cash? Uh, but the answer to those questions is so I can sleep well and so I can take appropriate risk with, with the rest of my money. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Morgan Housel, you know, who I know you had, you had a great episode of your podcast with him recently, uh, you know, he does the same thing, you know, he, he, he kind of explained, you know, it doesn't make any sense for him to pay off his house, but he did it anyway, because, you know, it just makes you sleep at night. And, you know, sometimes, like you said, I mean, those of us that are quants tend to get trapped in, you know, these spreadsheets and all that stuff. But sometimes like a decision like that is the sensible decision. I want to ask you about the decision you made to get out of bonds, because I think that's probably a good way for us to kind of think through sort of the behavioral, you know, the way, maybe the proper way to make these decisions. So when you decided you maybe didn't want to own bonds anymore, did you just, I mean, you kind of made the decision, then you kind of called up your dad, who's your advisor, and you sort of talked through with him, and then you, you sort of made the decision as how to do it. Is that sort of the way you went through it? Yeah, that, that's right. So, uh, you know, bonds are, <clears throat> uh, bonds are a little more predictable than stocks, of course, and you just can say with greater certainty sort of whether or not they're favorably priced. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just really that simple. And, you know, it's a little, it's interesting because my dad, um, so I'm, I'm 42, I'll be 43 later this month. So my dad, my dad got his job on the day I was born. And so for effectively my dad's entire career, uh, bonds have been a winner. And I mean, he's, he's made his money he's made his career basically off of helping helping people uh you know helping people with their bond portfolios that's been a big part of what he's done uh but you know i i talked to him and and he sort of understood that relative to my goals and my risk tolerance and and sort of my look on the market uh that i just didn't think that bonds made a lot of sense and you know i'm i'm also influenced by um you know, Nassim Taleb's writing and, and this idea of sort of a, a barbell portfolio, right? I mean, my my portfolio is a, is a barbell portfolio, right? I have these relatively low risk assets like cash and, and sort of a, a residential real estate. And then I've got 
uh, we'll talk about how I think about stock investing here in a second, but my stock portfolio is active and concentrated and um, factor-based. And so, you know, I, I sleep well with that particular portfolio. And for me, bonds at the time were sort of neither of the plates of the, of the barbell, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. Do you think there'll be a point as yields, I mean, assuming yields will keep coming up here, which we don't know that for sure, but do you think there'll be a point where you might consider putting bonds back in? Yeah, I think the point is now. I think the point is, you know, even even right now, they're they're starting to look attractive and and I think I'll be I'll be back there. Yeah, so moving on to the equities, I, I wanted to ask you quick, you know, you, you sort of talked already about you're, you're not an index investor, you're using factors, which is obviously music to our ears. But can you talk about a little bit about how you think about which factors you use and sort of the types of approaches you use with equities? Yeah, so I um I have, you know, Jack as you know, I have I have long-term aspirations to do something uh, with behavioral investing. Like I think there's I think there's some value to be had in applying behavioral insights to the management of money and I think, you know, you've seen Fuller Thaler asset management and and others like them uh do this to great effect. And so the way that I do it in my own portfolio, I, I keep it pretty simple, but it's, I have my own little formula, right? And it's basically a combination of, <clears throat> of value, quality, and momentum. And I, I combine these things. I know that, um, you know, there's, there's people who are a lot smarter than me, like, like Wes Gray, who, who sort of do sleeves, right? Where, where they'll do, uh, you know, if a portfolio has 50 stocks in it, you might have 25 with the lowest absolute valuations and 25 with the, you know, absolute highest quality or whatever. I actually look for, for equities that have all three of these characteristics in tandem and have a little scoring system for how I score them. And so for me, it's, it's really this basic. Uh, value tells you where a stock sits right? Like it, it tells you where a stock lives, where it's positioned kind of on the board, if you will. Uh, quality tells you what a stock could be when it grows up, right? <laughs> you know, uh, quality tells you, so, you know, where, where it, it, it sort of should sit. And momentum tells you how fast it's going to move from point A to point B. So I'm looking for uh, attractively priced stocks, uh, that are of of high quality businesses that are going to get there in a hurry because a lot of times the market can take a very long time to correctly price an asset. So it's it's really that simple to me. It's like where does it sit? Where is it going? How fast can it get there? So do you use ETFs at all on the equity side, or is it all individual stocks? Individual stocks. And are are you fairly concentrated um, in your portfolio? Yes. So um, the way that, well, I mean, what's, what's fairly concentrated. So the way, the way that I think about it is, you know, I wrote about this in my books. It, I think there's a couple of mistakes that, that investors make sometimes. Um, if you're going to be passive, right, there's a, there's a ton I love about passive investing. Um, I think it makes sense for, for most people. If you're going to be passive, be passive be massively diversified and do it at a very low cost, right? These are the these are the benefits of passive investing. If you're going to be active, be active, 
right? If you believe in your, if you believe in your edge, and I do, like if I believe in this edge over time, uh, do it in a way that is uh, diversified enough to be humble, but convicted enough that you can actually sort of get the benefits of having an edge. So, you know, I'm going to mess up the actual numbers, but I think just from a mathematical standpoint, you get 90 plus percent of the benefits of diversification with just 15 or 20 stocks. So <clears throat> for me, when I'm sort of running these, when I'm running these little, these algos, I'm looking for 30, 40, 50 stocks, right? Uh, and, and I'll be in that ballpark because that's the line I'm trying to walk. I want to be diversified enough that I get the math, the, you know, the bulk of the mathematical benefits of diversification and I protect myself against, you know, just everything, right? Business risk, acts of God, bad, bad data. <clears throat> but I want to be convicted enough that the value the value quality momentum piece that I'm looking at can shine through because if you're not convicted, then like, why bother? You know, if you're going to buy 2000 stocks, why, why do this? Yeah. And this sort of gets back to your barbell idea. Cause you know, one of the things running these sort of concentrated factor portfolios we've learned is, you know, it's really, really hard for people to stick for these, with these things. You know, we saw the 10 years where value underperformed. So probably having that other side of the barbell probably makes it a lot easier to stick with a more concentrated approach on the equity side. hundred percent. 100%. You know, um, Dan Egan, who we, you know, we all know, he wrote an article that I think about all the time. And I forget the name of it. <laughs> but it was basically, it was basically like investors need a faith, right? Like investors need a faith. And I am a true believer in, you know, the things that I've written about and the way that I invest. And so that makes it easier to stick with like values underperformed. I mean, you guys know values underperformed for what, like 15 years or something. But yet, you know, I believe in value to the degree that it makes it easier for me to stick with it. And having this other sort of, you know, stack of plates on the other side of the barbell makes it easier to live through as well. So, so you run the screen and then you, you, you run the screen and then you send the names to your dad to actually buy those? Is that how that works? Yeah, some, sometimes he runs it, sometimes I run it. But yeah, we both have the the screen. And what happens when he's like, this stock's a bunch of garbage? <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So this is this is another thing. This is another thing. So don't even look like don't even look at it. Just hold your nose and buy them. Like I'm you know, I'm a because if you look at them, God help you because they all look like garbage, right? I mean, there's you know, if, if you go back to like Greenblatt's magic formula, right? So Greenblatt has this magic formula that's, you know, outperformed handily over time. But what was cool is that he offered it in two ways. Like people could go to his site, magicformulainvesting.com, and they could get his picks for free, right? You could go there and get these picks for free, or you could pay some crazy fee to have him manage a mutual fund, which did the same thing. Well, over the course of three years, he compared, uh, you know, his mutual fund to the S&P to people who ran the picks and then sort of discretionarily picked out the ones they liked and the ones they didn't. And the discretionary uh, ones underperformed the S&P, like the magic formula greatly outperformed the S&P, 
but people who are selecting from the magic formula stocks and then adding their own research and their own discretion actually did worse, worse than just index investors. And there's all kinds of research on this, right? That that human discretion uh, usually is a, is a ceiling and not a floor, right? And, and we think we're being additive when we go through a, a sort of nicely curated algorithmic list like this and pick from it. Usually we're being destructive though. Going back to your, your point about faith, do you think there's any way for us as an advisor or for some of themselves to sort of gauge that faith going in? So the reason I ask that is because we try, you know, if we're putting people in a concentrated value portfolio, we try up front to try to figure out, you know, can they stick with this thing? But, you know, no matter how much we tell them, all right, this thing can underperform by 20% in any individual year, you know, the mark, you could lose 50% of your money. No matter how much we tell them that, it seems like when you get into the real thing, a lot of the people just won't be able to st stick through there. So I'm wondering if you have any advice in terms of how you can maybe gauge that faith up front. I, I, I only have my personal experience that, that when I was, you know, I, I mean, I was an outsider to this industry. When I came in, I was a clinical psychologist. I knew nothing about finance at all, right? And so sort of found my, found my way here. And so as I began the learning process, there were certain investment approaches that were just made no sense to me. And then there was this sort of value quality approach that that just stuck. And I think you see this in just even our friends and our peers in the industry, like, right, you got the technical folks and the Momo folks and the value folks. And, and in a lot of ways, it's consistent with their personalities and, and who they are as, as individuals. So I don't know, maybe we come up, maybe the three of us come up with some sort of quick assessment that's some co kind of Cosmo quiz for like, what's your investor personality type? Because I don't, uh, I think there's something there, but I don't know of any shortcuts to just kind of doing the work and going, yeah, this, this stinks. This doesn't fit. This does fit. Yeah. You know, that's what we've sort of found as well. Like you, you want to find something the person actually believes in, you know, if you kind of work them through the factors and say, does it make sense to buy cheap companies? Or do you like buying stuff that's going up? Like with momentum, it's like, if you could do a little bit of that up front, it, it does, it does help. Um, Going back to your equity portfolio, would you ever, do you do anything tactical? In other words, like I remember like Meb Faber had a thought experiment he did on Twitter a long time ago where he kept like putting higher CAPE ratios and he kept asking people like, would you sell all your equities if it was 50? Would you sell them if it was 75, 100? Like, would you ever do anything like that? Or are you a believer you pretty much have to hold equities through anything? So I believe, I believe, um, <clears throat> I, Meb's work was super influential on me. It's something I would like to do one day. It's nothing I do currently. And and part of that's just because I'm young. You know, like I don't, you know, I'm, I got 30 years of work left. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter much for me um, if the market dips out for a couple of years or not, or goes sideways for a couple of years. But I do believe that there's something too, too quantitative, tactical, sort of behaviorally informed management it, it can't be done haphazardly because I'd say most tactical management is really bad, but the kind that Meb's talking about, that this disciplined sort of quantitative approach, I don't, I don't do anything like this currently with my own money, but I have some ideas on how it could work that I, that I have designs to research and, and look into. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's something like trend following, you know, can make sense, but you know, that, that also tends to introduce some behavioral problems as well, which is, you know, it's getting you out of the market sometimes. And sometimes when your neighbors are making a bunch of money and you're not, 
you know, trend following can be, it can be an issue as well. Um, is there anything you invest in that we haven't covered yet? I mean, do you do any kind of startup private equity type investing? Is, is there anything else you do that we haven't talked about yet? So I just did, I just wrote my first check for a very small private investment and it was, it's nothing I plan on doing a whole lot of, um, the, the tax forms are a monster. It's just kind of a pain. It just so happens that I believe in this person so much that, that I believe in them and in what they're doing that I thought it made sense for me. Uh, maybe one day when I have more money, I'll do more of that because, uh, but you know, I'm sort of a big believer. My, my whole thing, and I know your whole thing with factors is you just want to tilt probability in your favor, right? You never know exactly what's going to happen, but you can tilt probability in your favor. And, and when you do that, good things tend to happen. And if you look at, at, at stuff like VC or angel investing, probability is not in your favor. So, you know, the money that I just invested in my friend was money I could afford to lose. And, and I'm with all love to this friend. I know the numbers and I'm operating under the assumption that I'll never see it again. And so, you know, anything, anything uh, north of zero is a, is a win for me there. Yeah. And to, to your point, you know, we had Meb on the podcast and Meb does a lot of private investing, but it's a lot of work. And, you know, he also has to invest in a lot of diff small amounts in a lot of different companies because you're you're hoping you get one of those big winners in there. But, you know, your odds in any individual investment are, are quite low. Yeah. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. Um, I want to ask you about the, the idea that you're in the investment business. So, you know, this is something that I struggle with a lot. You know, our, our business, the value of our business is tied to what the stock market is doing. My income is tied to what the stock market is doing. So you could argue I have a lot of beta in my life, you know, between my investments and my business to the stock market. And I'm wondering, this might get back to your barbell idea, but is there, do you make any changes because of that? Because you work in the investment business to your portfolio? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it's a big reason why I take this barbell approach. You know, I um, I am invested in the stock market. I work for a financial technology company that has an asset management arm that is, you know, who, whose fortunes are directly impacted by the stock market. So my employment, you know, depends on how the stock market's doing. The equity I have in my employer is dependent on how the stock market is doing. And so it's a big reason why I, I am more conservative with sort of the left end of that barbell than I think the spreadsheet would tell you I should be, because I think I have so much market risk sort of baked into my employment and the equity I have in my employer. I wanted just to ask you about sort of going back to the cash for a second in your portfolio, because I'm wondering, do you ever do you use you, you and you mentioned optionality so obviously you kind of look at that when the opportune time comes you might i'm guessing deploy some of that in the in, in, into the market into your stock portfolio or maybe other things so um is there like a point and i'm not trying to put you on the hook for like a market timing call here or anything like that but i mean do you is that the way you utilize sort of this cash to try to get into the market maybe when the values are better um and, and do a little bit of that yeah, so I with with this cash, I look at basically two things, and it's admittedly a little haphazard. And and part of it is I, you know, I'm I'm working on, um, I'm sort of working on what's my theory of how to be a tactical investor. But basically, it comes down to uh, valuations and momentum, right? Um, again, Meb's done great work that 
when we tend to have high valuations and and flagging momentum, it's kind of look out below. Uh, but when you have uh, when you have uh, cheap valuations and good momentum, good things can happen. And so, yeah, I think um, I've already uh, I've already put some cash to work in in the past little bit. I assume I'll be doing some more of that soon. And it's it's a work in progress, if I'm honest. But like it'll be it'll be broadly to do with with valuations and and momentum. How do you? Um view saving for your you said you have one child one um you oh you have three okay you have three of them so um do you do you uh do you use 529 plans do you have custodial accounts for your for your kids and then maybe just to build on that like how do you view sort of investing for your children but then also what you want them to have when they're adults are you do you take the some people are like you know my kids are going to just have to make it themselves and they're not going to have any investment accounts and they're going to have to figure it out. And other parents are like, you know, I want to try to save for my kids if possible. And I want them to have my, maybe money for a wedding or maybe a down payment for their first house or something like that. Like, how do you view that for your children? So uh, this I, I'm going to aggravate every financial advisor who listens to this. So I did have I did have 529 plans uh, for my kids for uh, for years and I didn't like being told what I could and couldn't do with that money. And I didn't, it was, I, so when I took, when I took the MMPI, right, this is a little psych tangent. When I took the MMPI, which is sort of like the test for mental illness, right, in, in grad school, we're learning how to administer it. And when I, and so we had to take it. When I took the MMPI, I'm a very sane person who has one outlier on his profile and it's resistance to authority. And I just, I couldn't stand being told what I could and couldn't spend that money on. And so I cashed, I, you know, I liquidated those 529 accounts years ago and I'll pay for my kids college. That's not a question like education. I value more than just about anything. So I'll pay for my kids college but I'm not doing it in any kind of tax advantage way out of my own stubbornness. And I know that's, again, probably stupid, but it's fine. My kids' college will get paid for. And I really, really did not like being told, um, you know, how I could not couldn't invest or, or spend or allocate that money. So, again, it's kind of like... Uh, I think personal differences come into play. And sometimes you 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 do something that's suboptimal because of your own quirks and i think that's what i did with a 529 account so i absolutely will pay for my kids college my parents paid for my college they've made it very clear to me that i'll be disowned if i don't pay for my kids college so i i i absolutely will um but i'm not doing it in any sort of specialized or, or tax advantaged way uh when it comes you know, Morgan, Morgan Housel and I had an interesting conversation on my podcast about kids and money. And I, I don't know if I have any great answers here. And, and in fact, my wife and I are sort of of, of, uh, of, of two minds on this. I would like to help my kids out. Um, in fact, I would love for my kids to do totally impractical, low paying stuff. 
right? Like I hope one kid is like a nature photographer and the other one's a screenwriter. Like I just, you know, every decision I've made professionally has been about how can I make as much money as possible? And I want my kids to have the freedom to not be, you know, <laughs> to not be jobless or not to sit on the sidelines, but just to pursue something that they value and something that benefits society independent of how much it pays. Um, and even when I look at my own, even when I look at my own professional career, my wife comes from a, a, a wonderful family, but a family who's very practical. It's a, it's a family full of accountants. And when she went to college, they were like, look, you can be a nurse, an engineer, or business, basically. Like, pick a profession that pays, we'll help you with college, but you are coming out by God with a degree that will get you a job. And I, that is a perfectly understandable impulse. Um, my parents were like, do what you love, go to school, do whatever you want. And this is how I come out with a psychology degree. And, you know, of course, have to go to lots of, of extra school. But when I look at my own career, I get paid way better than an engineer because I did something that I loved and something that I was good at. And, and that's what I want for my kids, too. So, uh, you know, this is something we're still trying to figure out. I know I'll pay for my kids' college. I'd like to be able to help them out a little bit with a down payment on a house or something. But, you know, like Warren Buffett said, I think you want to help them enough that you elevate their prospects. You allow them to, to do anything they want to do, but don't enable them to the point that they can do nothing. And that's sort of uh, the fine line that I think that we as a couple are, are trying to walk. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, you, you, want, you want your kids to be happy in life and, you know, fill, be fulfilled and have jobs that they like, but they also can't be like sleeping on your couch when they're like 30 kind of without a job, you know? So it's like that, that balancing act. Um, you know, Jack and I, given the fact that we're sitting here doing a podcast and haven't made any money off it, but we love doing it. <laughs> our parents, <laughs> I think our parents would be somewhat proud. I'm not sure still <laughs> figuring that out. <clears throat> um, just a couple more for me. So I wanted to ask you, um, when you think about, uh, I guess, mistakes or the biggest lessons you've learned from, you know, you don't manage necessarily your own portfolio. Now your dad's doing it, but when you were doing it, what was maybe one or two mistakes that, you know, really stand out to you that you, that you learned from? Oh, there's a bunch. I mean, it's all the, it's all the behavioral stuff that I kind of had to learn the, the hard way. Right. Um, you know, I early, early on learning, um, you know, early, early on learning about markets it's easier reading about it in a textbook than it is in, in real life. And so I overestimated my ability to, you know, uh, pick good stocks sort of discretionarily. I overestimated my ability to sort of arbitrarily time the market. I, you know, I, I think I underemphasized my own earning. That's, that's one thing that we haven't talked about is, you know, one of the things that I really try and focus on is just cranking up the engine of my own wealth, which is, of course, your income and, you know, just the, the money that you're bringing in. So, I mean, I think I've learned all the mistakes, you know, I mean, I've had, I've had, 
dumb success that I sort of uh, thought was was skill when it was really luck. You know, I've had, um, you know, I've bought stuff that went to zero on a tip of a friend. Like, I mean, I've done every dumb thing in the book. Uh, and in some ways, you almost have to learn these lessons yourself, which is why when I look at like the Robin Hood thing, it's such a mixed bag to me when I see so many new investors entering the market in like 2020, 2021. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, you know, a lot of lessons are being learned and you just hope it's the right lesson. So uh, all all the lessons I feel like at this point, I've I've learned the hard way. Can you just maybe spend a minute or two on talking about um, sort of the income for a second? Because I, I think that's a very good point. And I, from what I understand, and I don't know for sure, you have like, you know, you have obviously the full-time job, but you've written books, you do speaking, um, you know, and it sort of is like multiple revenue streams sort of that you've developed. And that's what, you know, fuels the, the, the portfolio. So it, like, that's something that's, I think, a little bit unique to you. Yeah, it's, you know, Nick, Nick Majuli wrote about it. I'm going to mess up the numbers, but go, go read Nick Majuli's book, Just Keep Buying, where he talks about, you know, how much easier it is to just get a better job or get a side hustle than it is to wring an extra one or 2% of alpha out of a portfolio. And I've, I've certainly found that to be the case, you know, um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like I've got my, you know, W2 employment. I've got a couple of books out there banging around, which don't, you know, don't make tons and tons of money now. I think my most recent book is now four years old. So it's not, you know, it's not making tons and tons of money, but still, you know, it's been published in 12 languages. You're still getting residuals from all these different countries. Like it's still all right. And then I have a podcast. Um, my podcast predates my employment. So that's actually uh, sponsored by my employer and, and is an, a, another stream of income. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just so much easier. It's so much more satisfying and it's so much more in your control than, than worrying about the markets. I mean, the average, the average person listening to this should, you know, invest in index funds and go get a, you know, go start a side hustle or go get a graduate degree. I mean, that's the, <laughs> that's the biggest thing you can do is just get more wood to stoke that fire with. You're going to be much better off than than trying to, you know, master the secrets of Warren Buffett or something like that. It it reminds me of what Ben Hunt said when he was on the podcast. He was talking about how you should harvest your beta in the stock market, but get your alpha in your real life. You know, find something you're passionate about, find something you're good at. You're much more likely to achieve wealth that way than you are trying to, you know, play around with your stock portfolio. Just um one question outside of the personal portfolio investing is in, you know, you have an interesting sort of seat at Orion. And I'm wondering when you think about sort of the future financial advisor, the advisor five or 10 years from now, do you see things that are sort of changing significantly where the the financial advisor of the future may be doing different things and, and maybe not but but if there are things like what would what would those be I'm, I'm curious so i posted um i posted something from mckinsey yesterday that it was research they did into sort of the advisor of the future and it just really blew up i was a, i was a little bit surprised i mean it was pretty 
pretty dry prose. You know, I mean, it's a McKinsey article, right? So it's a it's a white paper from McKinsey, but it was basically saying that an advice, like in a nutshell, uh, an advisor's job is going to be more and more relational focused and more and look look more and more like a, a life coach. Candidly, I think they even said the words life coach, and to me. I think that's exactly where we're headed. Because if you look at money, right, um, <laughs> the American Psychological Association came out with their survey this year, top three stressors of Americans, money, work, and the economy, followed by family. So it's like money, 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 and family, effectively. Money touches every part of our lives, and it's so predictive of whether or not we have good relationships. It's so predictive of how happy we are, how how able or unable we are to to sort of pursue other things in our life that may be fulfilling. That as the the investment problem becomes more and more solved, and I think it is right um, as we continue to move towards more passive, more diversified you know, more low cost ways of investing. I think the way that advisors are going to add value is on the behavioral side, the relational side. And I think they're going to be called on to do a lot more sort of family counseling. I think they're going to be called on to do a lot more sort of life coaching and just sort of being a decision Sherpa, you know, someone who sits at these important points in a client's lives when they have, um, big decisions to make and and help them out. Uh, that that's the new business right there. Decision sherpa.com. Is it did you go did you check it? Decision sherpa.com. I already I, I already own it. I already bought it. You can't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you already bought it, yeah. You bought it during the podcast. As as we reach the end of these, we always like to ask about this idea that not all investments you know, make money. Not all good investments make money. And so like, I like to talk about my sailboat. Like my sailboat is a horrendous investment. Um, you know, it, it just loses money left and right, but I get to go out on Wednesday night. I get to have a beer with my friends. I get to go, you know, do something I enjoy with people I enjoy being with. And so it's been a great investment for me, even though it loses money. And I'm wondering if there's anything in your life that's like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for me, like the big, the big stuff I spend money, I mean, aside from like the, the life stuff, I, I spend money on guitars um, and guitar equipment. I spend money on shoes and I spend money on time with family. Right. And so all of those things bring me so much joy, right? All of those things bring me so much joy. And like Justin's, Justin's face, when he saw that I had three kids, he was doing the math about how expensive that is, right? It's enormously expensive. And yet I can't, you know, I can't imagine my, my life without my family. And, you know, the, the same thing is true of like, um, the guitars thing, right? Like I'm not a great guitarist, like I'm an intermediate guitarist, but it's, it's something that pushes me. It's something that, uh, uses a part of my brain that doesn't get actualized at work. It's a thing that makes me try and solve problems in creative ways and, and, and try and and try and write songs or create art that isn't paint by number, which is shockingly hard to do when you really get down to it. And so, yeah, these things I, I value a ton, 
even though there's probably not a big a big payoff in financial terms i'm never gonna you know write a best-selling album but you know these things mean the world to me and they make me more of who i am and who i want to be and i think you can't you know put a price on that we like to ask all of our guests a standard closing question um, on these episodes, and that is if you could teach one lesson to your average investor about how you've sort of managed your own personal portfolio, what would that be? Put first things first, right? We spend all this time talking about money, but money is only as good as the life it builds and the people it serves. And so I think in your pursuit of money, right in your pursuit of of acquisition make sure that none of it's happening at the expense of the the people that you love the most i think it just becomes really easy to let family and relationships take a back burner uh when you're when you're trying to get ahead it's easy to tell yourself that you know you'll be around when or you'll do this when and uh you know i just think that None of this should come at the expense of your health. None of this should come at the expense of your family. And I think that people who put first things first are going to be all right over time. Daniel, thank you very much for spending this time with us. I think, you know, not everyone's always comfortable talking about their own portfolio, but I think, you know, what we talked about today is important. Um, and a lot of investors can can learn from this. If, if people want to learn more about you, follow you on Twitter. Um, obviously, we mentioned the podcast, um, Standard Deviations, but where can they go to uh, learn more? Yeah, I check out the books, The Laws of Wealth and the Behavioral Investor, and uh, at Daniel Crosby on Twitter and Daniel Crosby PhD on LinkedIn. Good stuff, Daniel. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.